unlearning, as you talk about it, for me, you know, as I interpret it, is about getting past your own experience and bias so you can benefit from the experiences of others who walk different paths from you but have the share, shared goals. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals to think big, start small, and learn fast. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Anurag Gupta, founder and CEO of Shoreline. A Shoreline is a product that helps site reliability engineers reduce the heavy lifting of dealing with incidents so they can focus their time and energy on improving their systems. Anurag has been a leader in this space for a long time. Prior to Shoreline, he spent seven and a half years at AWS, where he ran their analytics and relational database services, starting from a tiny team to suddenly managing services, deploying millions of nodes and tickets all over the world. Before AWS, he did a mix of management and technology roles and was actually in a team at Oracle when they only had 20 database engineers. Can you even imagine that? His story of twists and turns of entrepreneurship, technology exploration, and finding ways to innovate is fascinating. It's a great personal story and professional story of growth. So listen in and let's hear how it got started from. I joined Oracle when it was still a small company. Like there were maybe 20 some people in the database team. That's hard to imagine there was 20 people ever in an Oracle database team. That's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there were 5,000, you know, I, my startup got acquired 5,000 the next time I was there. So, you know, a fair difference between the two. So that was a lot of fun. I got to work hard, you know, really learn things, you know, you know, sort of nose to snout, you know, sort of nose to tail. And so that was great. But then I, you know, I kind of came to this point where I was like, does it matter to anybody whether we're faster or Informix is faster or Sybase is faster? I care, but this is just ego speaking. And yeah, at the, around the same time, I read the book Seven Habits of Highly Successful. Well, yeah, I'm sure you know it. And there's this point in the beginning where it talks about, okay, sit down in a quiet place and imagine you've died. What are people saying about you and who's saying it? I thought about it and I thought about what they would be saying about me, what I'd want to be the, the arc of my story. And I realized I knew what I wanted and I knew I couldn't do it, but I'm an engineer. So I'm able to break big problems into little ones, excessive little ones to solve. And yeah, so I said, well, you know, what I'll do is I'll join a startup, maybe 80 people, trade my X skills at Oracle to, you know, like learn how to do startups. Then maybe I'll go to a 10 person company. Then I'll start my own thing. That actually came out. The story after that did take a change, but you don't really want to live your life the way some 24 year old thinks that you should live your life. But at least for a portion of the arc, it was right. And I think it made a lot of sense, was fulfilling in a sort of greater purpose kind of way. It wasn't actually what I wanted to do, but it led me towards what I thought I'd want to do. It's such a powerful technique. It resonates with me a lot too. I'm a big believer, you know, maybe whatever vision you can create for yourself, it really helps focus. I find it inspires me. It pushes me. It keeps me focused on something. If you want something, 
to come to life and create it. You have to envisage it. And I think it's a great exercise that many people don't do maybe enough of. It's actually really thinking like, where do I want to be in five years, 10 years? What would it take? What would the experiences I'd need to create for myself to become the person that I want to be? Because me, that's what I think, as you describe them as opportunities or starting a startup, they're all little experiments to become the person essentially that you want to be. And if you can't define that person, you can't really run those experiments, I feel. I really believe, I mean, this may sound woo-woo to you, but I believe that if you really know what you want, the universe kind of bends its way to help you get it. You know, if it's something worthwhile, I'm not saying if I want uh, Tesla or something, I don't think anything's going to help me out there. But that's also, you know, my own fault. If I want something real, I think the world will bend in my favor. And you'll make it bend. Yeah, exactly. That's part of the, the pace for sure. Tell me about the other points then as well that sort of jumped out to you then. This idea of the visioning piece is really important. What, what else struck you? So prior startup got bought by Oracle. I went back to Oracle. From there, I went to AWS, you know, really. That was an interesting experience. I didn't know anyone at Amazon. I didn't know anyone at, in Seattle even. And with the job was in Seattle, so... There were reasons why I had to stay here, but I'd commute up there four days a week. But it was an amazing job because they told me, like, hey, here are eight people. Go disrupt data warehousing and transaction processing. Now think of it. I just came from Oracle where they have 5,000 people and five man millennia going into the product every year. And so, you know, what I was thinking to myself is, how do I break that down? They've got a 30-year head start on me. And what I decided was, it's okay if somebody's got a head start and is running in their direction, as long as they're going the wrong way, which immediately begs the question, you know, like, okay, where can I go that's different, that where I can still find a community that has chosen not to go in that direction? Those two products turned into Aurora and Redshift, and, you know, they did really well. I mean, when I joined... Database and analytics was a $3 million business. Eight years later, it was a $5 billion business. Eight people turned to 800. You know, it was a good run. Let me ask you more about this, because this is fascinating. I love contrarianism. I think it's like one of these superpowers sometimes of entrepreneurs. It's almost intuitive to them. People look at the mountain, and at that time, the mountain is Oracle, which, as you say, millions of hours of time, energy that they can focus and put into a product and keep building that mountain. It's almost irrational for most people to think that there's any way to usurp that, to shift the conversation to for what is a pebble of eight people. So how do you plot that path? It's something that I love hearing. Like, how did you make the bet to choose the path you did to almost create this whole new area? Because as you say, yeah, like in the, cloud these... databases were not a thing back then. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And certainly no one was expecting AWS to build them from scratch as opposed to, you know, take other people's databases and run them for them. So I guess, you know, I really believe in finding non-consumption, finding people who are unhappy and therefore not using stuff. But if you gave them something that, you know, it might really take off. So for example, with Redshift, what I was looking at was what I call the analysis gap, where the growth of storage was growing almost 
four times faster than the growth of the enterprise data warehouse. So it's like, why are people storing this data that they're not trying to analyze? I asked somebody about that and said, like, my data warehouse is where data goes to die because no one will let me put data into the data warehouse or run more queries or any of it. And so, you know, I was like, okay, well, if I could be 10 times faster and 10 times cheaper and a whole heck of a lot simpler, maybe there's something here. That was sort of the birth of cloud data warehousing. I mean, nowadays, uh, Snowflake is the king, but yep. we kind of started that journey. And it's fascinating, though, just even to hear the thought process. I even wrote it down as you said it, non-consumption. That's such a really interesting way to describe yeah, that's problems. Online. You can read that from, I think it's Christensen who came up with yeah. that. Yeah. I want to tease it out a little bit more, right? Because for right. many people, it's such an interesting way to identify unmet needs. When I hear you describe that, you're looking at these problems that even listening to you describe it there, you're, you're scratching your head when you talk to people and yep. they say, data warehouses is where my data goes to die. Apart from that, and obviously SharePoint is where documents go to die. Everyone knows that one. But it this notion is very interesting as a way of teasing and finding things out. So what helped you have higher conviction in this space? What were some of the things that sort of gave you a sense that there's a real opportunity here? Like, What were the things that were moving around you? The technology innovations, it sounds like were a key component of it. The human non-consumption, again, is really interesting. You know, what I think helped me was understanding that, hey, Oracle, when I was first there, was 20 people. And we built a big business. Yeah, huge. You know, it's not impossible. And at the same time, one might argue that it's harder for them to innovate with 5,000 people than with 20. You can't put 5,000 people around a table. You can't go and do some big project and understand you'll need, probably need a hundred people to do anything large, you know, like let's say Oracle Rack. But back then you needed four to figure it out from the top to the bottom. So it's different. And so, you know, Jeff Bezos used to talk about the two pizza teams, you know, like communication is the square of the number of participants. And so you yeah. really want to minimize communication. Therefore you want to minimize the participants. And so, you know, I kind of believe in that. The other thing is, is that really just believing it's okay to fail. Like if I hadn't joined AWS, what I have done, I would have been the VP of engineering in some startup. Yeah. If I failed at AWS, what would I go to? I'd be the VP of engineering, engineering at some, at some startup. startup. <laughs> and maybe I'd feel a little bit, you know, sad and beaten down and whatever, but so what, right? That's just ego again. As long yeah, as right on. You, know, you kind of just, if you're going to take, and that's exactly, by the way, why AWS started me with like eight people, because you can take your time and think. If they'd given me 300 people, I'd feel like I need to put all of these people to work right now. Yeah. You know, I love hearing people who were a part of those designed experiences in a way about how AWS has created these huge products and businesses is Every time I meet someone who's been there, they all started in these very, very small teams with a bold mission. Stephen Orban, who's probably one you're, you're probably yeah, familiar know. with as well, right? Yeah. Like Stephen was on the show before and talking about building out the data business that he worked on. And 
I still remember meeting him in Chicago or sorry, New York. And, you know, he took me up to where the team was kicking off and it was like him and two other people. And he's like, oh yeah, no, this is, this is the this team, is awesome. Barry. I'm like, are you serious? He's like, yeah, no, this is it. And maybe one day we might have, you know, like five people over there and seven people over there. It, it gave me so much heart that how intentional the design of innovation was. And in so many other businesses, as you described, I would go into these Fortune 500 companies and they have an idea and instantly there's 150 people there and yeah. a huge burn rate and the pressure to produce something. It always really struck me when I hear these stories of, from folks like yourself of how true people hold to the constraints to make the innovation happen, which I think is fascinating. But you didn't like, you know, again, eight. AWS is just one step on your journey, starting Shoreline and going on your like, so tell us more about like, just as you were, I'm sure in, in Oracle and you had this aha and an opportunity to go and create with AWS, right? You've been struck by more, like entrepreneurs never only have one idea. So tell us more about Shoreline and moving into sort of site reliability engineering, because for me, that's just such a fascinating field, especially as these systems keep getting bigger more complicated what was your insights there let me tell you the personal story and then i can shift into the why shoreline story so sure. i'm sitting at aws i'm doing really well i've got a great team pretty good calm really interesting work and it really suits me it's pretty much an ideal job but here's the thing i've got a special needs child and my wife comes to me and she says look man you're doing really well at your job but if we want to not just help our own child but all children like him. I need you to make 50, maybe 100 times what you're making right now. You know, that just wasn't going to happen at AWS or Google or Edge Fund or whatever, right? And, you know, the big epiphany for me, the unlearning thing for me was it doesn't matter how comfortable you are, how others perceive you. That's kind of the jail cell you put yourself in, but the door right is open. On. And, you know, if you're not on the path to your goal, you have to change your path or change your goal. Life's really that simple. And when I think of it, you know, like uh, back to the seven habits thing, you know, who do I want to give my eulogy? What do I want him to say? I want him to say that I helped him and children like him or that I tried and I failed. I mean, I'm proud of Aurora, but who cares? What you leave behind at core are the people you touch, not what you did. You're giving me shivers here, like listening to that type of story. It's profoundly inspiring. And yet, even just to hear you talk about this notion again, of this power of visioning, because both of those stories, whether you tried to help and you succeeded, or you tried to help and you didn't, they're both fantastically noble stories. They both carry equal weight in my mind, right? I mean, people and people really love talking about folks who are successful. But the key is the people who try. Right on. You're really actually giving me a bit of inspiration, which I need today. So thank you for that already. As you say, like whether it's life, whether it's entrepreneurship, whether it's tackling hard problems, the notion, it's funny, and something I constantly am trying to instill a role model in myself, both for my teams and even my kids, it's like what matters is that you try. It's the act of the attempt is what matters because results are often outside our control. Sometimes you succeed, exactly. sometimes you fail. For me, they're just the feedback. They're just yeah, a, I mean, a you particularly learn that in startups, right? It's a lot of it's about luck. 
that's it. It's showing up and having another go. There's nothing learned from quitting. You just yeah. learned that you quit, but keep trying. That's a special place. So tell us then how you've, you've encoded this then into, into Shoreline. That's why I love having entrepreneurs on the show is because it's never about the business. It's always about the person, the instant, yeah. the values, the behavior. And if you can get those into yourself and be true to them, what you manifest is companies or it changes in the world or helping special needs kids have the help that they need. Like This is what happens. So tell us more about Shoreline even, what encourage you even to identify that as an opportunity. So, you know, it's again, one of those areas of non-consumption. So one of the things I learned a lot building and operating services at AWS is what people care about most is that they're up all the time, not about the features, not about the performance. They don't necessarily realize that, but they realize it when they go down. They need yeah. them to be basically up indistinguishable from 100%. At AWS, we did a decent job at that, and we got better every year. I mean, it's all about relentless improvement. But most companies out there just throw bodies at the problem. For every dollar they spend on cloud infrastructure, they're spending $3 on the people to manage it, which is insane. And yeah. I've heard people say like 50 to 90% of the, what they do in production ops could be automated. So that's pretty cool. I mean, imagine how much time and money they could redeploy to innovation if they could free themselves up from keeping the lights on. It's hard for me to imagine going into work, coming home, why I've asked him what you did, you know, honey, I kept the lights on. It's not, it doesn't work, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I've had some great people on the show. It's funny, one of the reasons I really do the show, it's like my personal development. I get to like listen to stories from people like yourself and, and I'm always left reminded, like I write down two or three things, like I need to do more of this or remind myself of that. It, it's fascinating, right? One of the other people I've had on the show, I'm sure you you know, is Casey, who set up the chaos engineering team at Netflix. Yeah. He's obviously gone on to build his own company at the moment too as well. But this notion, you know, where the reliability of systems now and the technologies we have are so complex, it is impossible for any one person to hold it all in their head, to understand why failures happen. And all of this amazing innovation starting to happen around like managing really complex systems to keep the boring lights on, right? As you say, yeah, but, but it's, it's such a, a fascinating space now as people think about like exploring safety systems and human factors. And I had the pleasure to go and do a workshop with John Allspaw and people who are really diving deep into human safety systems and applying that into software engineering. Really fascinating two days. Like I was just sitting in a room with like physicians and software engineering talking about managing complex systems. Fascinating. There are a couple of things I tease out of what you just said because you're spot on. The first is, is that as an engineer developing software, you're going deep into one area. As an operator maintaining software, you have to know enough about everything. And you don't know who is going to be on call. You don't know what's the issue that's going to arise. So that's really a tough game. The difference between being like a medical specialist versus being in the ER. You don't know who's going to come in through the door. It's very different, but there's a lot of stuff that we can map over from, so to speak, the real world. We've been doing industrial control theory for 
good solid 100, 200 years. So those models that we use to manage complex systems there, can we bring them to model software systems today? Well, I mean, clearly the answer is yes, but I don't think that's how we think. And not enough people talk about it. That's the thing that has struck me. I've been lucky to be exposed to these ideas almost through meeting people like yourself. I often describe myself as a failed engineer. That's what I studied in university. My first job was like writing code, but my path followed me more to product management. And sure. that was my curiosity. You know, I loved writing code one day out of five, but I loved trying to figure out product problems five days out of five. And that's how it worked out. Do you like, you know, debugging people more so than debugging yeah, code? That under the code, that right, that right on that. It is fascinating, again, like to see what's starting to, I guess, permeate the technology conversation is going back and looking at human factors and resilient systems engineering, which, as you say, has existed for 100 years, whether we're building bridges, where we're building planes that make them safe for people to fly on, the errors that happen and how they can have these massive effects, unintended consequences. I've just learned so much from sitting, as you say, with a surgeon describing the human body as a complex adaptive system, and then listening to someone like yourself talking about the architecture that you're trying to design for a website and how that is a complex adaptive system. It, it's been fascinating. But one thing that is really interesting that always goes through is the creation of community. People who go are exploring these ideas are creating communities, whether it was chaos engineering with the folks at Netflix, whether it was just the community that John Oswald was bringing together. Well, it was very fascinating to me. You're also doing something similar as well in your space, reliability, like people who are passionate about that space. So can you uh -huh. tell us a little bit about how much community has played a role in a lot of these innovations that you've created? Because I can see it's part of your makeup, right? A community, even in your personal life, to support your yep. situation and your son right through to the software and community. So tell us a little bit more about reliability.org and what's inspired you there. Really just have kicked that off. It's a nonprofit. Unlearning, as you talk about it, for me, you know, as I interpret it, is about getting past your own experience and bias. So you can benefit from the experiences of others who walk different paths from you, but have the share, shared goals. This is a nonprofit community created for engineers who want to learn how to design, build, operate highly reliable system, indistinguishable from 100% uptime. It's an environment away from people selling stuff, even you know people like me selling stuff in my commercial offering too where we can just debate and learn from each other's perspectives, where we can talk about a data dog outage one week or the uh, East Palestine train wreck a prior week or whatever. So, you know, it's still small, but you have listeners who are interested in reliability. I'd encourage them to join and just work with each other. And, you know, it matters a lot in this world where local incidents can have really broad impact. But Building the system remains a black art. So why not learn from the people who, rather than having to get the scars on your back through bitter experience? Again, I think it's one of these contrary viewpoints where so much, especially in a competitive industry, there's always this tendency to say, oh, we can't share information. We need to lock up our stories. There was an incident. 
we can't tell people what happened, which yeah, you're here insane. laughing and smiling yeah. for the viewers who probably can't see you, right? Because you obviously have firsthand experience about how antiquated those ideas are. It's actually the opposite. And this is a great unlearning I always find is that the high performing teams, when there's an incident, they almost get excited. They're like, we're going to figure out some assumption that we thought was correct is actually invalid. And we're going to make the system more resilient. We're going to make it respond better to that instance in the future. And I've seen people gathering around with nothing but curiosity to understand how did this happen? No looking for blame, a neck to choke. It's a true and really fascinating environment where I think most people can even understand that that exists yep. because their experience of failure is it's your fault. You did something wrong. The boss is coming to get you. And yet that couldn't be anything further removed from what high performing teams do. So could you talk a little bit about that? Because you live this, how you create that environment, I think is so important. You're exactly right. When you think about blameless cultures and so forth. For every large-scale event at AWS, you know, you'd gather around and you'd write the cause of error report, and you know, which would have the timeline of what happened, when it was detected versus when it started, when it was first diagnosed, you know, who got involved, when it was repaired, all of the many, many steps. And your goal then is to collapse the steps wherever they may be. It might be having better monitors, it might be whatever, and you have to create a action list. The key thing in the action list is, is that it should be mechanistic. It should be processes because you can improve processes. You can improve mechanisms. It's very hard to improve people because new people come in, old people leave, people make mistakes. I mean, very few people come in and say, this is the day I'm going to break the website. I mean, <laughs> if you have that problem, you've got bigger issues. Yeah, exactly. You got the wrong people in there. But, you know, it's websites break. And so why does that happen? So you really need to work on ways that you take a very long-term view and you say like, okay, 1% better every week. That's all I want. And how do you get there? It's by learning from others and, you know, applying their experience and bad luck and so forth. Yeah. It's fascinating, you know, and that's why I love hearing you like again, taking these lessons and trying to bring them to a community in an open forum like reliability.org where people can show up and learn from, I always say this all the time, I want to make better mistakes than the mistakes I made yesterday or exactly. hopefully people can learn from my mistakes and make better mistakes themselves than I made. It's such a, a helpful space and community, as you say, to be, to like grow this discipline because our systems ain't getting easier. They ain't getting simpler. They seem to only become, as you described yourself, like it's harder for us to see what's happening inside the processor unit or the data model or more and more. Like we can't, we're not capable of it. So it just becomes more and more interesting. So for you then, like looking ahead, what are you most interested about? Like what are the areas of the technology where Shoreline's going, your own personal journey? What are some of the things that are sort of standing out to you that you're excited about, as well as you're starting to build this community with reliability.org? For a shoreline, I'm really interested in how do I build something that's ubiquitous, where if anyone anywhere has fixed a problem, that everyone everywhere 
gets the benefit because that would be an amazing place. There's this maybe open source family of solutions because you know what? We all sit on the same infrastructure. We all use the same databases. We all use the same messaging systems. Yeah, the apps are different, but they all sit on the same app servers and languages for the most part. You know, you might as well get the benefit. Why is it so secretive right now? It doesn't make sense. Yeah. As you say, you're willing it into existence with reliability.org. So again, I, I thank you again for sharing your stories. Fascinating to learn more about you as a person, as well as the businesses and the initiatives that you're working on. Again, thank you very much for sharing. And I look forward to maybe having you back on the show again to hear how reliability.org has grown over the sort of months and years ahead. I think it'd be fascinating to follow. Yeah, thank you so much, Barry. I really enjoyed the conversation. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that show, but I'm even more delighted to share the exciting news. I've recently co-founded a new venture studio named Nobody Studios. Now, Venture Studio is a vehicle for the rapid creation of new companies from ideation to acceleration and growth. And our purpose at Nobody Studios will be to de-risk pre-seed stage business ideas. We'll do this by minimizing the time, speed, and capital involved in validating truly repeatable and scalable business models before any significant venture investment. We've an audacious goal to start 100 compelling companies over the next five years, and who knows how many beyond that. So if you're interested in radically changing the way work is done, how products are created, companies built and funded, even democratizing the wealth creation and how returns are distributed, this could be the business for you. We're looking for talent, capital, and influence. If you wish to contribute any or all of these, just get in touch. You can follow us on nobodystudios.com, on our LinkedIn page, all the social media accounts, or simply my newsletters and what I'm sharing. We'll be launching a truly innovative crowdfunding campaign, and I'd be honored if you'd be willing to join us on this journey and become a nobody yourself. <laughs>